This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. The 81st scientific sessions of the American Diabetes Association concluded last week, and while it was the second meeting to be held virtually, it was, as usual, packed full of interesting symposia and brand new data. So we reached out to three of the speakers to hear their highlights and discuss their presentations. You can find their disclosures and links to the published data we discussed in the episode notes. Firstly, I spoke to Professor Anne Peters, who's a professor of clinical medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California in the USA. She spoke at several sessions on diabetes technology and presented the draft of the first ADA-EASD consensus report on the management of type 1 diabetes in adults. So what was your personal highlight from ADA this year? My personal favorite is a topic rather than an individual session, which is that there were many sessions devoted to the concept of social determinants of health. And this isn't a new problem. We've had this issue around for a long time, but it's something that because of the pandemic, perhaps because of an increasing social awareness, that we're now looking at the population who historically hasn't been benefiting from a lot of our advances and treatments, and yet they're the population who needs them the most. So even though I listened to many of those sessions and they didn't come up with solutions, they certainly are now framing the issues. And I've always worked in an under-resourced community, and this has always been part of my mission, which is to help those who have less and to design systems that work. And I think a theme both for me and at the sessions was that there isn't an overarching answer. What there is, is a community answer. So if I'm going to try to change anything for a city in Los Angeles, it has to come from the community because I can't impose my answers. So working with communities, working with community workers, working with uh, peer educators, working in the community, listening to their needs and their answers, and then helping provide that expertise is something that I think is really important and was highlighted in these sessions. And I think it needs to be a conversation that we never forget. So that was very important. And secondly, we presented the first ever guidelines for the management of type one diabetes. And I was co-chair of that group. And to me, that was the combination of really, really hard work over the entire pandemic that we all did through Zoom. It was ADA, EASD, and with uh, much effort, we, as good colleagues do, came up with some recommendations, and then we opened those recommendations um, to comments because we just presented the draft of what we suggest, and we're going to spend the summer sorting through those comments, and then in the fall at EASD present the final version. So to me, it was a real triumph for people with type 1 diabetes to finally have their own set of recommendations, and hopefully it will help expand that field and, and lead treatment forward. And moving on to um, some data about um, GLP-1 receptor agonists, we had a lot of data presented um, from the STEP program um, of uh, 2.4 milligrams in obesity and then sustained forte, which looked at 2 milligrams in type 2 diabetes. What do these trials add to our knowledge about semaglutide and possibly the GLP-1 class as a whole? 
Well, semaglutide has been a compound that I've really loved. And I love it because it works. And it works to lower weight. It works because it's a great A1C reducer. And we know that there's cardiovascular benefits. The step-up program, though, in people without diabetes showed to me a really remarkable and sustainable weight loss. And I think given the safety and true benefits of the compound, that it's the first weight loss drug that I've really had that I think is good for people. And I think that it will help prevent diabetes. I don't think that they're going to be harms other than what we know of because we've had the GLP-1 receptor class on the market for a long while now. So I really welcome it as a weight loss drug. And I think that it will help patients who are overweight and may help some of them avoid bariatric surgery, which would be great, um, and help people with prediabetes. But the question for me is how is it going to be reimbursed and whether patients can really get it. But I'm, I'm eager to be able to use it and I think it's a real benefit to the weight loss field. So I find both sets of trials um, interesting. And I do think that higher doses of semaglutide, both in the setting of diabetes, as well as people with obesity, is going to make a real difference. Great, thank you. Um, and then moving on to another um, symposium, uh, which was the Amplitude O um, Cardiovascular Outcome Trial for Fpiglenotide. Um, what what do those results mean for the GLP-1 class? And has it changed anything that we previously thought about the class? Well, first of all, only you can say the name of that drug. It's such a hard drug to say. But I think that the data just confirms what we believe, which is that GLP-1 receptor agonists help reduce cardiovascular risk, uh, may improve renal benefits. There really seem to be a consistent theme that fits with the class, whether or not that agent comes to market is, you know, unclear to me given its history, but it is nice to know that we continue to see benefit um, from GLP-1 receptor agonists and it doesn't change what I do. And if it comes to market, it would certainly be some uh, something I consider using, but it would be, uh, you know, fourth, fifth, whatever it is to market. So we'd have to see, but Certainly, it was nice to to show again that there was a class effect here with these agents. Next, I spoke to Dr. Deborah Wexler, who's Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts in the USA. She was a co-author of the ADA-EASD consensus statement on management of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes and as a principal investigator for the GRADE study, which she presented results for during ADA. For our listeners who couldn't come to the session at ADA, could you briefly summarize what the key findings were of the study? Sure. Well, I'm a GRADE investigator. GRADE is a long-term comparative effectiveness study that we've been conducting since 2014 and was designed in 2012. And the study was designed to fill a gap in the guidelines to determine which next glucose-lowering medication was most effective at keeping and maintaining the A1C less than 7 and less than 7.5 over many years in people with type 2 diabetes treated with metformin. So the trial enrolled people with type 2 diabetes treated with metformin alone with duration of diabetes from 0 to 10 years. Average duration was about a little over 4 years. And randomly assigned participants, 5,000 of them, 
tocitagliptin, a DPP-4 inhibitor, glimepiride, a sulfonylurea, liraglutide, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and glargine insulin. And followed patients over the long term, and we know people with type 2 diabetes take medications over the long term. And we actually found a difference in outcomes among the four medications. So the glargine and liraglutide were most effective at keeping A1C levels less than seven and less than 7.5 over the, about four years of follow-up on average, almost five years of follow-up on average, I should say. Um, and that was followed by glimepiride and citagliptin. Great, thank you. Um, we also know that not all of the final results were presented because some of the data is still being adjudicated. So what else can we expect to be reported in the future from this trial? There's a lot left to be reported. So th those were just the top line results. And what I would say is, although the primary, the primary outcome of GRADE was metabol glycemic metabolic outcomes measured by hemoglobin A1c, we knew that this cohort was going to be the first cohort since the UK prospective diabetes study, the UK PDS, that really still is the trial that we re refer back to for sort of the epidemiology of type 2 diabetes. We knew the GRADE was really going to be the first trial since the UK PDS that really had a kind of long-term follow-up of patients. And so there's lots and lots of things we're going to be looking at. We already reported the microvascular outcomes, which showed no difference among the four treatment arms. Um, and we reported preliminary results of the macrovascular, cardiovascular outcomes, which showed a potential benefit of liraglutide compared to the other three agents. However, we only have 90% of the cardiac outcomes adjudicated. And so those events should be considered as those findings should be considered to be preliminary. And in the kind of coming months, we will finalize the adjudications, publish the two main papers on the glycemic outcomes and the cardiac uh, macrovascular and microvascular outcomes. But then in coming years, there's a wealth of information to be learned from GRADE. For example, were there subgroups that responded better or worse to some treatments? Um, what was the mechanism of benefit? We did oral glucose tolerance tests in all participants, and we'll be able to look at indicators of insulin secretion and in indicators of insulin resistance to see whether that can help explain the mechanism of benefit or lack of benefit of some of the medications. And there's just going to be tons and tons of other um, evaluations, including cost effectiveness, adverse effects, you know, a deep dive into um, all the various outcomes. And we, I imagine that we'll be reporting results of grade from years to come, just as we've seen the results of the UK PDS continue to be reported, you know, even up until the present day. And looking at um, the trial protocol versus the tr treatment landscape today, an obvious point is that the trial was designed before SGLT2 inhibitors were available, so they weren't included in the study. So do you think we're likely to see a similar trial in the future to, to look at those? Well, the truth is, I think many people would like to see a similar trial. Um, it would be wonderful to have a comparative effectiveness trial of SGLT2 inhibitors versus a GLP-1 versus potentially basal insulin, which showed equivalent benefit. I, others have said it would be wonderful to see the comparative effectiveness compared to some of the dual or multiple receptor agonists that we saw reported at the ADA and that are going to be emerging. Um, and I think it would be wonderful. I think one of the challenges is that registration trials are often placebo controlled. A placebo controlled trial often has a very crisp message. Um, it's one medication compared to placebo, um, often designed to highlight the benefits of the new medication. A comparative effectiveness trial is much more relevant to what we do in everyday practice since we don't prescribe placebos. We prescribe, we choose between alternative treatments. 
but they're much harder to do. They might they need to be much larger because you're looking at two effective treatments. So the sample size needs to be larger to demonstrate a difference in outcomes. Um, and the message is often not as crisp and clean because in fact, the trial isn't designed to show a certain outcome. It really is designed to compare uh, in an unbiased way. And so somebody has to fund that large, expensive and messy trial. And we were very grateful that the NIH and the NIDDK you know, saw the value in doing this trial um, I think what we would need is other big funders to step up to do a long-term comparative effectiveness trial, which I think is badly needed. I would like to comment on the fact that people have said, you know, sort of question the relevance of GRADE given the lack of an SGLT2 inhibitor. And, you know, certainly would, would have been wonderful to have an SGLT2 inhibitor as part of GRADE. But I still think that the results of GRADE are highly relevant for a variety of reasons. First, even if SGLT2 inhibitors are your next go-to medication, there's lots of people who can't tolerate them or don't want to be on them. Um, and then there's lots of people who will need to be on these medications, you know, long into the future. And so I think being able to look at the outcomes um, with the four medications used in GRADE, which are still very commonly used and will continue to be commonly used, um, I think is still going to be highly relevant to people treating, to uh, clinicians treating people with diabetes for years into the future. Fantastic. And finally, what do you think the key implications are of this trial for real clinical practice? Well, again, we don't have the final results in, but I think if the preliminary results hold, I think we have certainly learned a couple of things. First of all, GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide was highly effective in people with high A1C and all participants in grade um, at keeping the A1C at target, helping with weight loss, and potentially having a cardiovascular benefit. So I think we may see a shift towards earlier use of GLP-1 receptor agonists. I also think the results with basal insulin glargine were very impressive. Um, we saw in grade that there were very few of the feared complications of insulin, by which I mean rates of hypoglycemia were very low, and actually weight was stable over time in patients treated with glargine in grade. And although it is not very appealing, um, it's usually not the first go-to medication in early type two diabetes. In fact, when people are insulin deficient in early type two diabetes, insulin replacement may be a very rational therapy. Um, and lots of other kind of analyses comparing insulin to other medications and pharmacoepidemiologic analyses, observational analyses, um, insulin has often not performed, has not appeared to look as good as other treatments, but there's been a lot of allocation bias in those trials. This is a trial, a randomized controlled trial in which patients um, at the same stage of diabetes were randomly assigned to insulin compared to other medications. And in fact, it looked pretty good. Um, compared to other medications um, without the bias we see in some of those observational trials. So I think that will also be an interesting take-home message of, of grade that may lead to earlier insulin use in people who maybe don't want the side effects of some of the other um, diabetes medications. Okay, one other, I think, really important thing about the long-term benefit of grade is that we know for people with type 2 diabetes that the most important thing is to individualize treatment to the patient. What can they tolerate? What can they afford? What are they willing to take? What are they going to stick with over time? And I think many of the secondary analyses of GRADE are going to help guide um, clinicians in trying to see which groups of people and which medications might be more favorable for different subgroups and helping to find the best um, treatment for an individual patient. And that extends to phenotypic analyses, genotypic analyses, and other um, analyses that will be performed in coming years. Finally, I interviewed Professor Francesco Giorgino, who's a professor of endocrinology at the University of Bari Aldo Moro in Italy, 
and presented data for the SURPASS programme of Phase 3 trials studying the investigational dual GLP and GIP agonist terzepatide as a potential new therapy for type 2 diabetes. So firstly, um, you presented um, some of the SURPASS data um, in a symposium. For our listeners who couldn't attend the session, would you be able to quickly summarise what the key findings were of the trial? The, the SURPASS programme is uh, still an ongoing programme, so what we have uh, uh, seen and listened to, um, up, to today, up to today is uh, only part of, of the story. So, specifically, the results of SURPASS 1, SURPASS 2, SURPASS 3 and SURPASS 5. And there are additional uh, SURPASS uh, trials, as I said, that are still to be completed or for which uh, the results have not been uh, released yet. So, this is a program that uh, develops uh, tirzepatide, uh, this uh, novel dual uh, GLP-1 GIP agonist, uh, as a, a drug uh, to treat people with type 2 diabetes. This is uh, what the SURPASS program is about. And so these uh, trials have investigated the role of, of uh, tirzepatide uh, in, in, in the program in, in regard to uh, several and different uh, clinical contexts. So there is uh, SURPASS-1, which is uh, a study in uh, patients with relatively short duration of the disease, in which uh, tirzepatide is uh, uh, considered against placebo, SURPASS-2 uh, with a slightly longer duration of disease in which uh, tirzepatide is uh, compared with semaglutide uh, on the background of metformin, SURPASS-3 which is a study comparing tirzepatide versus insulin degludec in people with uh, a duration of the disease of about eight years and uh, this is uh, on top of uh, background therapy represented by metformin and in uh, some of the patients also an SGLT2 inhibitor and SERPAS-5, which is the study in which tirzepatide is being considered as add-on to basal insulin, so in people that are already treated with insulin with a longer duration of the disease. And of course, this is against placebo, so in, uh, compared with people that continue with basal insulin treatment. So this is, uh, these are the data that have been uh, released uh, so far at the ADA. And uh, I would say that uh, the results are pretty uh, homogeneous because in all of these studies, there was a very important reduction. of it. So patients had a baseline HB1C uh, around uh, 7.8, 8.2, 8.3%. And in these uh, patients, there were reductions of HB1C which were uh, much greater than what, what we have seen so far with any diabetes medications. So in surplus 2, tetzepatide was superior versus sulutide, uh, providing a greater reduction of HP1C as compared to this uh, other GLP-1 agonist. In surplus 3, it was uh, largely superior versus insulin degladate, which was titrated intensively, as compared with insulin degladate. And in surplus 5, there was an additional reduction of B1C in people that were already on insulin uh, therapy. So a very uh, high proportion of patients who ranging from 82, 81, 82% to more than the 90, uh, 95%. So really, the, the majority of patients uh, were achieving the target of HP1C lower than 7%. And interestingly, 
given the potency of atezepatide in correcting hyperglycemia, also an opportunity to explore the proportion of patients that were uh, brought back to normal HP1C levels was around uh, 25%, 30% with the, the lowest dose of tricepatide and was uh, 50% or even greater with the highest dose of tricepatide. And again, also in this respect, there was a very uh, important result, more prominent as compared to any of the comparators. Additionally, the program highlighted the ability of uh, tricepatide to promote uh, large uh, uh, losses of body weight. So in essence, this is a program that highlights the uh, important ability of this uh, drug, this uh, novel GLP-1, GIP agonist, to uh, really correct hyperglycemia, even bring patients back to normal glucose levels and uh, favor large reductions of, uh, of body weight. In, uh, in essence, uh, this occurred in the absence of a high risk or any risk, I would say, excess risk of hypoglycemia, and uh, it was associated with uh, a profile of tolerability which resembles the ones seen with uh, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, which includes nausea, uh, vomiting, and diarrhea, but to a similar extent as compared to what we already uh, know for GLP-1 receptor agonists. As you've mentioned, a significant proportion of patients were able to achieve normoglycemia. So do you think this is something that could change potential goals in the future if tazepatide were to be approved? I think this is uh, something we have to, to really uh, consider very attentively because, uh, first of all, as I already alluded, it's something we have never seen before to this extent. So there is now an opportunity, I believe, to consider uh, achieving a normal HB1C as a potential novel goal of diabetes therapy in people with type 2 diabetes. And it is something that uh, if it is achieved in the absence of excess risk of hypoglycemia or other uh, potential risks, so why not uh, should be pursued? So this is, uh, I think, the first uh, issue that should be, again, uh, as I said, very attentively considered as a potential new goal for diabetes therapy. Now, the uh, consequences of uh, keeping an individual uh, and under conditions of normal glucose levels for a period of time are also to be explored. We know that uh, the beta cell deteriorates over time in type 2 diabetes, and this is because it is also exposed to high glucose, high fatty acid levels, and there are additional issues like uh, inflammation, and probably also some genetic programming that determines the fate of beta cell exhaustion over time. So if uh, there is a drug that uh, uh, ameliorates or even normalizes hyperglycemia to, to, to normal levels and uh, also takes, take, takes care of excess lipids and potential has also some anti-inflammatory actions as you would expect from a GLP-1 agonist, this could potentially lead to a different fate, a different rate of beta cell decline over time. So this is another, I think, interesting hypothesis that should be addressed both clinically and experimentally. It is possible, in essence, that tetrapatite could change the natural history of type 2, type 2 diabetes over time. So I think uh, these are interesting questions and uh, will deserve some uh, research in the future. 
This brings us to the end of the episode. For further reading, you can find links to the discussed abstracts and publications in the episode notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review or rating to help other people find the podcast. Join us again for the next episode for a discussion of potential new therapies in clinical development, again with Professor Anne Peters.